Good morning, afternoon. afternoon, whatever time it is. It's Wednesday. <laughs> uh, anybody else lost track of time during this thing? Like I, uh, somebody said. Yeah, I read something yesterday. Somebody said uh, tomorrow's uh, Tuesday or June. Right. I, I can't, I can't, right. I can't remember which. It's like so. uh, just don't even know what month it is or really what year it is, and it doesn't really matter apparently. Yep. But uh, we're back with our uh, Wednesday evening Bible class, because it is Wednesday evening. We know the date and time. Um, and so here we are, and uh, Rick's going to present us with a lesson this afternoon, and we're going to have a discussion, hopefully. Uh, if you have any questions, write them here, uh, and we'll, uh, I'll introduce those, and, uh, and let Rick field all the difficult questions. <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, but uh, we're looking forward to the study on the tabernacle as a type of God's presence. Yeah, this is a, this is an interesting uh, situation. This is one of those um, types where we are taking something um, and comparing it to someone. Um, up until now, most of our lessons have been um, this idea of people. Uh, in, in, under the old law or in the Old Testament compared to Christ. And uh, last time we looked at the Passover, which was a thing uh, compared to a person. I forgot to point that out, but you're aware of that anyway, uh, that the Passover was not a person. So uh, we have um, in this example another one of those where um, an, an entity, something that God uh, used in the Old Testament uh, to our benefit and uh, comparing it to Christ later uh, in the scriptures. Um, for those of us who um, might be tuning in for the first time, I'm going to just real briefly talk about what a type is and, and where we're going and, and why, why, we're, why we're studying uh, this. Just a couple of minutes. Keep me to a couple of minutes. Okay. okay. The, um, the study of types uh, is, uh, I find it, uh, fascinating. I was not aware uh, when I first began this uh, study several years ago um, that God had used uh, this many Old Testament entities, we'll call them, to um, point us to things that occurred in the New Testament um, or to point us to Jesus or his nature, uh, his character, um, the things he did, the things he underwent on our behalf. and. Uh, it's only by, by delving uh, deeply and diving deeply into this, this study of types that we come to appreciate not only uh, the fact that we have these comparisons, we have these Old Testament symbols that point to uh, something in the New Testament which is superior to that which was under the Old, but it was by design. These occurred in the mind of God. He made them happen for our benefit. And so as we study these Old Testament types, it, um, it, it's incumbent upon us to, to know as much as we can about them so that we can make those connections that we are supposed to make. God designed these for us to use for our benefit, to uh, increase our appreciation for him, our love for him, and our awe for uh, who he is and what he is as the God of creation and God of our world. So this study um, started um, with 
looking at people to people. And we looked at Moses and David and, and Isaac and, and Abel and others who are reflected uh, in some way or another um, very clearly in some feature or some aspect or Christ himself, uh, of Christ or Christ himself. And so uh, we have gone through several of those. And right now we're uh, today going to look at the tabernacle. Uh, of of God um, as he worked with the people from the uh, the, Isra uh, the Israelites who escaped from Egyptian bondage, bondage <clears throat> following the plagues and all the things that took place there to allow them to leave. We might just mention, and I'll allude to this probably more than once, um, the things that we find um, with regard to the tabernacle. The tabernacle itself was a foreshadowing of something that uh, happened long before we get to the time of Christ. The tabernacle itself was an edifice, um, a, a very large tent with another tent, uh, walls with a, a tent inside of it. But also later on, um, many uh, several hundred years later, the temple of God was created um, and built in Jerusalem. Uh, David was allowed to collect the materials and Solomon built the temple. And we're going to read a couple of things that allude to that in, in just a moment. But when we talk about the presence of God, the tabernacle itself was designed to be or to allow for the Israelites to know that God was with them, that he was protecting them, that he was guiding them, that he was, um, he was comforting them, he was reassuring them them um, so that when things didn't go well they could look to the tabernacle the cloud the fire and so forth to know that God was there uh, even though things were not 100% uh, great for them depending on the circumstances they were in uh, at that time so when we talk about the tabernacle and its uh, influence its purpose for existing we could take that, those almost those same words, and apply them to the temple um, as well in Jerusalem later. Um, God provides extreme detail concerning the uh, the tabernacle, and we'll talk about some of that a little bit later on. Um, in Exodus 25, 26, and 27, he lays out in considerable detail. Um, some of the uh, things that are, are supposed to be done with uh, with regard, specific regard, to the construction of the tabernacle. Uh, we're not going to take time uh, for that, but uh, he lays out what's going to be inside. He lays out uh, how it's supposed to be laid out. He, he lays out how it's going to be built and all of that. Um, but in uh, Exodus 40, and, and let me say this. It says this later down here. Um, and in, in, if you have your outline with you, under uh, section 3 there on that first page, Elements of the Tabernacle Found in Christ, it says Exodus 25 through 40, not only 25, 26, 27. Those, those three talk specifically about the tabernacle. But all the way through to the end of Exodus, uh, chapter 40 is the last chapter in Exodus, all but three of those chapters, 25 through 40, lay out in specific detail all the things that Israel was supposed to observe and had to observe in order to keep the law 
according to how God had laid it out. And so, um, this is the, as I say there, this, uh, this is the longest explanation in the Bible. You have 12 full chapters that talk about the specifics of the collection of funds, the details uh, for who and how uh, and with what the, uh, the tabernacle was supposed to be constructed. Uh, the priesthood, their garments, their jobs, the particular items that would be contained in this tabernacle and by whom and how it would be even transported from place to place. So the level of specificity and the level of clarity that uh, God expresses in his commands and how he wants this tabernacle built and handled um, as long as they would be using the tabernacle uh, are very clear. A lot of detail and uh, more detail as, as I've said than almost anything else in the Bible. I can't think of anything else that he lays that much uh, <coughs> detail down on. In uh, uh, chapter 40, of, of Exodus. Uh, it says this in uh, 34 to 38. It says, Then the cloud, this was after the, all the tabernacle had been built, then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting, the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now we, um, I don't know if they had, I think they had the cloud before now, but if they didn't, this was the beginning of the cloud that would uh, lead the Israelites by day uh, when they picked up camp and moved to the next spot, the cloud would guide them. They followed the cloud because this is also what it says there. Um, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I'm going to come back to that just in a second. And throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, if the cloud did not move, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. <clears throat> now, I don't know what uh, this cloud was like. If it's like our clouds today, it's something obviously very visible. I don't know if it was a dark cloud or if it was a white cloud or whatever. <coughs> Um, but that has relevance for us. It has meaning for us because we know what a cloud uh, looks like. But the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle. Do you know what that was like? Not a clue. <laughs> I, have, I have no idea. I don't know if that was something visual or if it was a sensation, um, a sense, something to appeal to one of our other senses or what. But uh, having the glory of the Lord fill the tabernacle on the day that it was consecrated um, and other times, I assume, when they, when they set up camp, um, the glory of the Lord would come and, and fill the tabernacle as well must have been something uh, fantastic. I, I don't know what it was, it's but true. it was something that, that had to be impressive because Moses, who had you know been in the presence of God number, a number of times, by now, uh, could not even go in. The glory of the Lord was so magnificent, so overpowering, so solitary. Maybe that was it, that God wanted to be in the tabernacle uh, by himself um, so that he could, in some way, set the tabernacle apart from 
whatever the rest of the camp uh, was doing. So, God maybe we does should see that. that as like some sort of radiance, like a light. Uh, Isaiah in Isaiah six tells us, you know, his his robe filled the temple, the train of his robe. Uh, so there's there's definitely something there. Something right? something's going on there. There's there's no doubt about it. Um, in Second Chronicles uh, chapter seven, um, we we have uh, an, another allusion to this with the temple. Um, in Second uh, Chronicles seven one to three, and then we'll jump over to verse sixteen. It says, "Now when Solomon had finished praying, and this was after the temple was constructed, and after he had consecrated uh, the temple." Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house, and the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because it is even going to sound more familiar with this phrase, the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And all the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped, and they gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly he is good, truly his loving kindness is everlasting. And over in uh, verse 16, um, after <clears throat> God, after Solomon uh, uh, consecrates the temple, God says to him, For now I have chosen and consecrated this house, that my name may be there forever. My eyes, my heart will be there perpetually. Now, we know that uh, that was conditional. Everything with God was conditional with his people. As long as they were faithful, um, he would bless them. As If they had remained faithful um, forever, then he would have been there forever and perpetually. But we know that uh, the, the Jerusalem, uh, the temple was destroyed um, during a couple of the captivities. Uh, we know that uh, the temple was destroyed again um, and the Jewish economy and the Jewish Ah, existence uh, as a nation and as the people of God was terminated in uh, AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem uh, by the Roman army. So uh, God reaffirmed kind of the way uh, when he made his promises to Abraham and then reaffirmed them to Isaac and then reaffirmed them to Jacob with the consecration of the temple and, and his promise to be there uh, and to have his glory fill it. Uh, was kind of re-emphasized or re-established here with the temple uh, after Solomon created that. I'm going to read a couple of uh, passages from the New Testament to show you why we are having this study. That is impressive. That is impressive uh, enough on, it, on its own. Uh, but in Hebrews, uh, the 8th chapter, <clears throat> I have in the lesson uh, verses 1 and 2, but I'm going to read uh, six verses here. It talks about uh, this comparison between um, the Old Testament tabernacle and Christ and uh, his church in the New Testament. After he has talked about uh, Melchizedek's priesthood and uh, the uh, priesthood of, of Aaron or the Mosaic, uh, the priesthood under the Mosaical law, he then talks uh, about, uh, about Jesus. And he says in chapter 8, Hebrews verse 1, Now the main point... And what has been said is this. We have in Christ such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heaven. And the glory of the commercial filled Chris's <laughs> office. Sorry. <laughs> um, verse 2 says, 
a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. Now, God required all of the elements to create the tabernacle. He uh, gave them the instructions on how it was to be built. He even named the individuals who were supposed to do the, uh, the, the artistry and the craftsmanship on the different parts of things. He had even set those individuals aside for that. But it was still created by man. When it says that Jesus has entered into uh, the, the throne of the majesty in the heavens, and it says a minister in the sanctuary, and that's what the tabernacle was, it was sanctuary, in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. God is the author of that true sanctuary which is, he which is heaven. Then it says, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence it is necessary that the high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he, Christ, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Why could Christ not be a priest on earth? Because he wasn't of the tribe of Levi. We know that only priests um, were, came from only the tribe of Levi, and Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. So if he were on earth, he can't, he can't be a priest, but in heaven he can and is. He would not be a priest at all since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law who serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Now those two words, copy and shadow, are um, translations, I believe, from our word tupos, the Greek word tupos, or the Hebrew word tupos. Which is it? Tupos, is that Hebrew or I Greek? I think it's Greek. <laughs> it's not English. I know that. <laughs> Uh, we get our word type, but shadow or copy are two of the definitions of, of, of um, our word type that we use. <clears throat> These things on the earth serve as a copy or a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, God says, that you make all things according to the pattern. That's another translation of that word uh, tupos possible translation, which was shown you on the mountain, end of quote. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, Christ, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. You can see the word, the use there of better. The earthly tabernacle had its function. It was, it was, it was impressive. We'll talk about how impressive it was uh, in just a few moments. But and and it had the uh, the glory of God uh, there, and so it 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 would it would inspire awe and reverence in the people uh, when uh, the tabernacle was was called into use uh, by by the people there at that time. But Christ's priesthood, Christ's ministry, Christ's tabernacle is by far superior because it in him all of the things that were not fulfillable under the old law we find fulfilled in him and so when it says he moves into that heavenly sanctuary that tabernacle that is not made with hands 
then he has uh, far exceeded anything that could ever occur on this earth. Would you like to say anything? Uh, I was just thinking when you were talking about this that in the Old Testament, uh, his, uh, his presence <clears throat> uh, is exclusive. Uh, it, ex- it excludes people. You know, the, uh, you couldn't, couldn't, but in the New Testament, it's inclusive. Um, he's he's looking for ways to, to incorporate people. Yeah. Old Testament, he's pushing people back. New Testament, he's, in, he's looking for ways to bring them closer. One uh, stark illustration uh, of that in the temple there and in the in the tabernacle as well there was a a very heavy big thick curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies back in the in the latter part the back part of the tabernacle and the temple Um, and only the high priest could go into that back part and only once a year I believe to uh, Mm -hmm. to offer sacrifices for the people Um, on the day that Christ was crucified, that veil, that curtain, was miraculously torn from top to bottom. Nobody was there. Nobody cut it. Nobody grabbed it and pulled real hard on it. Mm -hmm. God ripped that curtain in two. Now, why? What did that have to do with anything? Under the old law, the tabernacle and the temple, that was where God resided. The high priest was the only one who had access to God under the old law to offer the sins for um, the people, offer sacrifice for the sins for the people. Jesus dying on the cross opened up that access. We have access to God that man under the old law never had. Um, and so uh, that is why that uh, tearing of that veil is, is so important, is because now we are no longer separated from God. We no longer have to have uh, people appointed by Him to go in and mediate for us. Christ is our mediator. Christ died for us and died for our sins. And so now He opens that veil into the presence of God uh, in the rear of the temple, I guess you could say, uh, for us. And we have access to him and his heavenly sanctuary as we come to him uh, in prayer and to communicate with him uh, when we do that. Rob Harris mentioned that uh, Ezekiel also talks about the... uh, the presence or the glory of God filling the temple in Ezekiel 8, 4. Uh, He mentions that, at least there, uh, but at the top of, of my Bible, he says that at the top of the chapter 8, it's abominations in the temple. Mm-hmm. And that, that thick, that curtain was thick. It's not like it's not like the little curtains we have in our house. It's yeah. this thing. It's, it's substantial. It's more like a carpet than a, than a curtain. Uh, and it was placed there so that when we did sin, God's presence wouldn't reach out and uh, and punish us, you know, because had we been in His presence, had there not been a uh, a shield between us and Him, it would have been over for us. Yeah, his yeah. justice would have obliterated us. And so we needed a shield. But in the New Testament, and the thanks to thanks to Jesus, we don't need a shield anymore. We we can have one on one relationship with Him. So it's it's just a super powerful point there. The uh, in Hebrews the ninth chapter, the very next chapter, verse uh, verse twenty two. 
It says, and according to the law, one may say, almost say, all things, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We talked about that a couple of lessons ago. Uh, Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens, there's that word copies again, to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So these things on earth were copies. The original, the true, the real, is that which uh, comes from heaven and with the better sacrifice that uh, Jesus offered than the animal sacrifices of the old law. It says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. There's that phrase again. A mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So, um, here is that. (laughs) Your own commercial break. Not even going to look at Unless that's someone correcting something. <laughs> you, if you want to correct us, talk, talk to Chris. You got to do this. Talk to Chris. Um, two, other, uh, two other passages. Uh, in Acts, the 17th chapter, um, Paul has uh, gone to Greece. And he is uh, on, on Mars Hill. He, he's, he's in Athens. And he goes around and he looks at all of these magnificent uh, recreations of, uh, of, their, of their gods, uh, whether they were animals or whether they were humans or human looking like or, uh, or whatever. And uh, he, he says, once, once he gathers, uh, he goes to a place where they were speaking and he says, he stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, men of Athens, I observed that you were very religious uh, in all respects for while I was passing through and examining objects of your worship, Verse 22, 23, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, or because you don't know that God's name or purpose, this I proclaim to you. The God who has made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. There's that phrase again. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from one of us, each one of us. For in him... We live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. But then, the offspring of God, being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men, that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, Christ, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So in the New Testament, um, 
the Greeks as well as the Romans had their uh, system of, of deity uh, that they would take some aspect of nature and say, okay, that aspect of nature needs a god. And so they would create, assign a god to that specific part of nature to do whatever that specific part of nature did. And then they would um, um, maybe offer sacrifices, they would pray to that god uh, that that god would, would uh, bless them uh, in some way. Paul says, that's not the way it works. This unknown God that you have noted here because you're, I'm assuming God, uh, Paul was saying you're simply trying to cover yourself in case you haven't uh, found that one yet um, and he might bite you, <laughs> uh, is the true God and he can be known and he is known and here's what he has done and here's what he requires of all men. So. So Paul uses that, that uh, reference again. It's, uh, he doesn't reside in a temple made with hands. He resides uh, in, in heaven. And one more, Ephesians 2, um, verses 19 to 22. He says this, and this is all uh, preparatory. Uh, it's part of the preparatory reading and a few of the passages uh, that, that I know some of you uh, were unable to do. So, so we're laying a foundation here before we get into more uh, detail about the lesson. He's talking to individuals who are Gentiles, who have become Christians. And he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, because under the old law, they were strangers and aliens. Um, it says, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So here's the big picture of, of where we're going with, with what we're talking about. God set up under the old law this notion of a dwelling place on this earth for him to come and visit man and uh, express to man um, his uh, uh, guidance, his guardianship, his protection, and so forth underneath the, the old law um, in the tabernacle. He reestablished that in the more permanent dwelling in Jerusalem um, with the temple. But in the New Testament, under the new law, concrete touchable, um, tactile, physical things tend to melt into the background. Under the new law, spiritual things take prominence. We, as a people of God, it tells us in Ephesians 2 here, right toward the end of those last few verses, we are God's temple now. His spirit dwells within us and our uh, taking that a step farther when this life is over that spirit that sanctuary that uh, that dwelling will take its place in heaven where Jesus is already there where the true and real and perfect sanctuary is not the copy or the shadow that we had under the old law
Do you see a progression here between the tabernacle to the temple to us? I wonder if there's something there. I'd never really thought about it before. But when you were talking about that, I was thinking, well, the tabernacle was this uh, this place that they spent a lot of money on, sure, and but they didn't spend a whole lot of time on it, and it was mobile, you know, so <clears throat> not a concrete edifice. It wasn't long-lasting. It was made out of things that were going to um, to rot and decay. And so I wondered if maybe the temple, you see a, a more concrete placement of God's presence in the temple than there. Um, but even that, it can be destroyed. It can be taken away from you. Right. Um, but here in the New Testament, you find something that's even more concrete. It's even more long-lasting um, yeah. inside of us, and it can't be taken away. You can kill the body, but you can't take away His yeah. presence from us. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm assuming that was part of God's plan, because uh, everything, <laughs> right. as it transpired, was, was God's plan. Um, temporary, um, transportable, yeah, um, less stable, maybe in the mm-hmm. minds of the people. The temple certainly uh, constructed. You know, it uh, the description of the uh, the Jeru- the walls of, of Jerusalem and the the construction of the temple uh, were built to be forever, um, more permanent, more solid, more located. Uh, Jerusalem was the center of uh, the Jewish world. Uh, the people, as we talked last week, uh, had to come from all over on Passover and, and other feast days to come to Jerusalem from where they were so that they could be there at the temple to offer the sacrifices um, that were offered at that time. So even more uh, permanent, uh, at least in the, eye, in the eyes of the people and possibly even in the eyes of God but not the real, not the true. Um, we go back to something that is um, just as important in our lives and in, in, in the, the lives of the Christians in, in the first century, but it's way more important um, in the larger picture. Temporary, permanent, earthly, physical. More permanent, uh, more physical, more concrete, um, less destructible, even though it was uh, destroyed, um, to illustrate that that God's people uh, were to be the economy of the time, and and except for the fact that Roman uh, Romans came in, Jews were still allowed to congregate and and uh, conduct all of their business in and around Jerusalem. But after that, um, then that sanctuary that temple made with hands, that tabernacle made with hands, um, disappeared. And so, yes, uh, we have this progression from that to this to uh, the true and the real. Uh, I think it's either intended or it's just the way it is. Right. Uh, I wonder if, uh, just thinking thinking out loud, (laughs) I haven't thought about this before, so I don't know if this is on point or off base, but I wonder if an illustration, a handy illustration for this wouldn't be like when you go visit a place, a couple of years ago, Kelly and I went to Chicago. And we just we were just visiting, so we didn't buy a house. We just we just you know rented a hotel room. And maybe the hotel room was the tabernacle, a, a tryout. Uh, his his first interactions with people, with his people, you know, and just kind of testing the waters, maybe. And then the temple would be more like, well, you're renting a space. It's not 
it's not a, a permanent fixture, but and then finally in the New Testament you find the, the perfect fulfillment where he's settled down inside of his people. He's bought a property. You know, he's invested even more than in the Old Testament. We can, it's it's we even can, deeper. We can probably even go uh, uh, one better on that. When uh, Manifest Destiny uh, was was the, the cry to fulfill our destiny to move from the East Coast to the West Coast to explore and to settle uh, the rest of this country uh, that uh, was now now ours. Uh, people traveled to to go across the country. They traveled in wagons. They traveled on foot. They and and they carried with them their houses on their back, either in those wagons or or the materials that were in those wagons. And that was a that was a that was a dwelling place for them. It was a tabernacle, if you want to call that. And that's really what a, a tabernacle. The word tabernacle means a dwelling uh, place. Um, and we'll talk about that uh, in another passage here in a minute or next week. Um, and so, uh, but when they got to where they were going or settled down along the way. They put aside that that temporary piece, and they built a house. They built uh, buildings. They established towns, and those things were more permanent. So, uh, as an example, that would that would probably fit uh, as well. Um, no expense was spared in the construction of the temple. Um, God specified everything, every piece of what was to be there. Um, with with extreme clarity, but in the creation of this, he didn't just say, "Okay, poof, here are your materials." He wanted the people to sacrifice. He wanted this to be something that came from the people themselves. Uh, he was going to give them all of the instructions, um, uh, lay out with extreme uh, clarity and detail all the all the pieces of the tabernacle but they were going to be the ones who were going to bear the cost. And so he uh, expected of them to come forward with donations um, of, of money and, 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 and materials um, of their own to, to build this tabernacle. I found somewhere uh, estimates on the cost, uh, today's cost of the tabernacle, and they ranged uh, considerably, uh, but it seemed that, that most centered on about... Um, now remember, this was. Uh, let me show you a picture before I give you that. Uh, let me show you a picture. This is an artist rendition of the tabernacle. We don't know exactly what it looked like, and it's going to be very fuzzy. Can you see that? Well, let's see. Got a little bit of lag. Yeah, oh, there it is. Okay. You see that there is a, an outer court outside the curtain, and then you have this curtain on the inside here, and then the inner court, and then the uh, in, inside part, the, the holy place and the holy of holies on the inside. This was a curtain that went around the um, outer court, and then the inner uh, part was was obviously on the inside. Now, you know, you would look at that and and you would say, "Oh, we could build something like that for you know uh, um, certainly a couple hundred thousand dollars, uh, even with the best of stuff." The estimates for 
this. And if you go back and read all of the types of things and the detail and how much uh, gold and silver and, and all of these things uh, overlaid um, the materials around, the estimates are $60 million in today's currency. When I saw that, it, it floored me. I, I had no idea that the uh, tabernacle being a tent that the people uh, would offer sacrifices around and in uh, would, would, would cost that much. But that's what they say. So God's specificity and clarity and sacrifice on the part of the people was considerable. He wanted this to be something that would not only honor him, but would also, I guess you could say, qualify to have uh, his presence uh, in front of the people or before the people. Um, Exodus 38 goes into detail concerning the cost for each part of this edifice and God wanted his people to sacrifice for his presence and they wanted him, it, him them to be in awe of both him and that dwelling place as they traveled toward the promised land. So as, as we uh, look at in a little bit more detail the elements uh, inside the tabernacle, um, it, keep that in mind that it wasn't just a tent. It wasn't just a tent with some curtains around it. It was that, but it, it was extremely elaborate and extremely uh, ornate. We've talked about this notion of uh, the better tabernacle of, of heaven um, and in the church, not made with, not made with hands uh, to come. Jesus and all that he represents there is our gateway to God that we talked about a while ago. And much of the tabernacle is not only symbolic, but it's directly reflected in the, the life and person of Jesus Christ. Not only symbols for them to uh, recognize and to know, but they also point to, very decidedly, things reflected in the life of Christ and uh, in the person of Jesus Christ as well. We talked about the uh, number of, of um, chapters that God devotes to the Details, the collection of funds, the details of who and how and why. We already mentioned that. The detail and specificity is indeed impressive, impressive and totally within the character of God. If we were in a classroom right now, I would pull out the whiteboard and I would say, well, let's brainstorm. Um, the old test, we did this not long ago um, in our class and we said, you know, um, uh, Galatians 3.24 tells us that the old law, uh, the scriptures, are to be our tutor um, to teach us uh, about whatever it's supposed to teach us. And so I said, okay, list for me the things that we learned from the Old Testament, um, either about God, about um, His will for us, or whatever. And so we just we started listing all the things that we can learn from the Old Testament. And in most cases, they have application for us in our lives in, in the New Testament. And we came up with a number of, of things, as you might guess. If I were going to do that same activity right now, I might say, okay, what, uh, what types of things in his word has he provided clarity on? And in, within you know a couple of minutes, I brainstormed myself and just came up with things like this. Uh, sin, he is very clear about sin. 
the particular types of sin. He gives examples of punishing those who committed sins. He lists them for us um, in both the old law and the new law. Uh, marriage relationships, um, purifying his creation. The flood was an attempt to purify man through water um, and, and start over. Uh, to get rid of the sin that was so rampant as we find in Genesis the sixth chapter there. Um, the absolute power that he uh, demonstrates in, in the plagues and the miracles. Um, the black-white, um, follow me, I'll bless you, you know, disobey me, I'll curse you and punish you, uh, is extremely clear. Um, the deity of his son, the preeminence of his son, the uh, authority of his son, the connection of blood and sacrifices, uh, what it takes to become a child of God or a child of his, all of those, we don't have to be like those on Mars Hill and say, well, I'm not really sure if we've covered all our bases. Let's have a God over here that doesn't have really a really a real name to it just to cover anything that we might have, have missed. That was in their minds and in their imagination. We don't have to worry about man's mind and his imagination. God has been extremely clear in what he has laid out for us, not only under the old law, but under the new law as well. And then uh, just before I came, I was going over this, and I thought, here's an example of something. After um, the laying out of all of this, with the law of Moses and the laying out of the instructions for the priests and, and all of this. In Leviticus, it's, it's recounted there. And by the time we get to the 10th chapter, all of that detail has been laid out. And then in Leviticus, the 10th chapter, we have some clarity. Nadab and Abihu, who are sons of Aaron, the priest, are carrying out part of their apparent responsibility um, within the, um, the tabernacle there. And evidently, they take it upon themselves to do it in a way that wasn't specified by God. The term there is that they offered strange fire. There is speculation about what that means uh, across uh, many different authors, but, but it just means whatever they did was not what God had specified and authorized. And when they offered that sacrifice, that strange fire, or carried that fire from one place to another, or whatever it was, the fire came out and consumed them. God, in the establishment of His law, His presence, His majesty, His control, His will, and a number of other things there was setting in the minds of the people. He means what he says. Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, were killed on the spot. And God was so upset with them for not following and not knowing, being the sons of Aaron, who was the high priest, they were priests themselves, not to know better than that. And so he made it even deeper. He would not even allow Aaron and his family to mourn these two. He was saying, this is how I operate, folks. 
this is the way it's set up. I've given you everything you need to know. Just follow the rules. They didn't. They died. And we mentioned in class uh, not long ago, interestingly, with the establishment of the church in the first century, we have people who were selling property. The people who were had come to Jerusalem uh, continued to come to Jerusalem with the establishment of the church after the, on the day of Pentecost because it was such a center for where Jesus taught, where Jesus died, where he was resurrected, how the church was growing in that area. So uh, there were many people there who, who, uh, who had just come and maybe even some who were poor, um, who were part of that church, who needed things. And so those who had were being encouraged to come or they were coming of their own will, selling a property and coming and laying the, those proceeds at the feet of the apostles. Um, and then we have Ananias and Sapphira, who did the same, but deceit, they uh, <laughs> lied to the Holy Spirit, mm. they lied to God, and they lied to the apostles because they kept back a portion of them and made it look like they were giving the whole thing. Now that doesn't sound like a very serious thing. They were just, they were just skimming a little bit off the top. Maybe they were skimming a lot off the top. I don't know what they were doing. But they, uh, once again, God sets the tone for what he expects of his people. And that's allegiance to him. And that is a pure heart. And he strikes them dead. Ananias first, and then Sapphira when she comes in, in later. And so it, I find it kind of interesting. I think it's more, maybe more than coincidental that we have these two situations. Once of the, under the old law, when God sets his law into effect with the people, that he demonstrates to them that he means business. And then, and under the new law as well, he demonstrates that he uh, meant what he said and he wanted his people to be pure and he wanted these initial efforts to get off on the right foot in as, as best way as possible and so uh, these lives uh, were taken as a result. It's interesting that in the you made the parallel between the the, temp, the tabernacle demanding sacrifice from the people and here in Leviticus 10 obviously and in, as well as in uh, Acts chapter 5 True. Uh, you find this sacrifice being demanded of of us who were coming close to God, uh, Rick referenced the that the fact that Aaron and his family weren't even allowed to to mourn the boy's loss, <clears throat> which had to be just incredible. But this is what Moses tells Aaron. I mean, just seconds after uh, his sons are two of his four sons are struck dead in uh, verse three in Leviticus ten three, he says, "This is what the Lord has said: Among those who are near me, if you want to be close to me, what do you have to do?" Well, you got to. I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And if we can't do that, we don't get to be close to them. Um, so there's, there's always the Old Testament, New Testament. There's always been sacrifices um, that He's demanded from His people, and if we can't hold up our end of the bargain, we don't get to be close to them. That's it. Um, it, it is a covenant. It is an agreement. It is a pact. And um, if we are faithful and true, He will, will follow through with what he has promised. Uh, he will, will reward. And uh, if not, then as God of creation, he has the right to enforce those negative consequences that he says will occur. Not only does he have the right to, he cannot lie. And he has said that he will. 
And so we have to do everything we can to stay as close to his will as possible so that we don't uh, incur those negative consequences. I mentioned at the bottom of the first page here uh, in going back and researching uh, this, I found um, some information from Adolf Safir, um, S-A-P-H-I-R, who was a, a 19th century uh, Jewish um, convert to Christianity. <laughs> and uh, the Jews, obviously, uh, who still, as we said last week, um, uh, observe Passover, this memorial feast that was set, uh, set up by God um, upon the uh, leaving, uh, the exodus, the leaving of Egypt, uh, as a memorial for all generations of Jews to look back to talk about and think about the the guidance and the the hand of God in that that exodus there. So as a Jew, he would he would understand a lot about the Old Testament and and its its meaning for them. But once he had converted to Christianity, he came up with this comparison of of the tabernacle and Christ and the points that are made, I, I lay out here. His first point is that the tabernacle is a visible illustration, a symbol of the heavenly uh, dwelling place of God, as we have just said. It says, read Hebrews 9, 23, 24. We did that a while ago to see how clearly this point's made in Scripture, and there are allusions uh, to this heavenly tabernacle mentioned in a variety of places. Second Chronicles 6, Ezekiel 1, uh, Psalms 24, Revelation 15, and, and other other places as well. So, this this earthly tab tabernacle um, was something physical, something tangible. The heavenly dwelling place of God is spiritual, and so there's that contrast. And by being a place not made with hands, it is automatically superior to um, the original. Uh, in Colossians 2.9, uh, in Him, in Christ, uh, dwells uh, the body uh, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and suggests that the body of Christ was all that God had planned for mankind. Hebrews 10.5, a body you have prepared for me. So that, that second point is that the tabernacle is a type of Jesus Christ himself. And then the third point that he, that he has there is that the tabernacle, like Jesus, was where God and the sinner met. Jesus is that point where God and man can have unity once again. And we talk about this all the time. We separate our sin, ourselves from God through our sins, and we have no way to uh, reunite ourselves to God. If it were left up to, God, up to us, there is no way that we could do that. They, we could not come back to God. There is not a mechanism there, even under the old law. That's as close as they could get was a, a recognition or a reminder or a remembrance of their sins. It didn't make them whole, as Hebrews, uh, Hebrew book of Hebrews tells us there. But God has devised a way for us to be reunited with him, and that's only through his son and the acceptance of his son. Um, so the tabernacle... Jesus, our representation of the tabernacle here, is where the God, and, where God and the sinner meet. Fellowship under the old law was through manifestations of God within the tabernacle. 
physical elements, sacrifices, offerings. Revelation 21.3 suggests that God is now with us in the form of his Son, sent to save mankind. And then interestingly, uh, John 1.14 says, and you know, if, if you've read the book of John, you know that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and, and verse 14, if you, if you, it reads that, uh, that man, uh, he came and man uh, did not see the light that was in him and rejected him. And then down at verse 14, we often read those first few verses and then we jump down to verse 14. And it says, and the word who was Christ, big, big letter uh, W, um, word capitalized, Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. Now we said a while ago that that word tabernacle means a dwelling place. And some translations will, uh, will render this passage, and Christ, the Word, came, became flesh, and tabernacled among us. Now we say that's a strange use of mm. the word tabernacle, but that's exactly what it means, dwelt among us. He left heaven, came down to this earth, and dwelt with us says uh, the following chart lays out several comparisons. We're, we don't have time. We only have about three or four uh, minutes left. So next week we will begin uh, with these point-by-point -point comparisons of things um, related to or within the tabernacle and how they're reflected uh, in Christ. Uh, we have not only um, these, these first things in general, but there's a second uh, table and chart that we'll look at where Christ is reflected and things about Christ are reflected back to particular features within the tabernacle itself. Yep, good stuff. Um, so the last point I wanted to talk about was uh, he's, he's kind of always been really specific on what pleases him, right? I've heard a lot of people uh, in our world say, well, you know, I just kind of worship however, I, whatever feels good to me. Uh, that's that's kind of what I'm going to do. Um he, he doesn't care, you know, as long as my heart's in the right place. He does care. I mean, that's unequivocally false. He does care. Uh, Leviticus points out, I mean, just chapter after chapter, the entire book of Leviticus is pointing to the fact that he, he absolutely cares how you worship. Either that or there, there's an awful lot of drivel there. <laughs> right. You know? yeah. Just inconsequential uh, babble if he didn't mean it. Yeah. He demonstrated that he mean, meant right. it. Right. Uh, especially with Nadab and Abihu. Um, and we should take that as a warning. Absolutely. Um, and so we go uh, back to Scripture to find how we ought to worship, how we should be saved. Uh, all these things are spelled out for us in Scripture. Uh, and so we have to go back to uh, Scripture to be able to find those um, uh, patterns, those things. So I um, wanted to point that out. Also, if... Uh, if you want to watch this lesson on a bigger screen, I know uh, the last couple of weeks we've I've just been putting it on uh, on Facebook. This week I'm gonna put it on YouTube, okay. so our faces will be on your on your big screens. Uh, that'll be lovely, I'm sure. Um, so and next week, Chris and I will sing a song. No, we're not. He <laughs> <laughs> said Rick may sing a song. No. You don't want Chris singing a song. Um, also, if uh, you have friends that don't have uh, internet capabilities, um, are not tech savvy and want to listen to our lesson here, uh, or our worship services Sunday, 
Um, I'm hoping to put a prayer list even on this thing. Uh, you can call in on any phone. You can call in on a landline. You can call in on a cell phone. You can, I said yesterday, you might even try to call in on a pay phone. Somebody's going to have to check me on that one. I don't think they exist anymore. <laughs> um, but anyhow, any phone you can call in. Call this number, 304-208-0763. I'll put that in the comments section here uh, too. But if you call that number, you can hear uh, in just a little bit. I'll download this lesson to to that number. You can call that number and you'll hear the audio from this lesson. Uh, Sunday, you'll be able to hear the audio from the worship services, the singing, uh, the Lord's table, the, the lesson, the whole thing. Uh, and then hopefully uh, sometime soon, I'll be able to get a prayer list up uh, and you'll be able to call that number and, uh, and hear about uh, who's struggling and who needs prayers. Uh, if you're not on um, Facebook, if you're not on YouTube, don't have those capabilities, um, we've been looking for a way to try to incorporate uh, those kinds of, those people that don't have those capabilities um, and stay in touch with you. So utilize that service. Uh, tell me if it works. Tell me if it doesn't. We'll figure out something else. Um, but uh, uh, let, let us know how that works. I'll put the phone number here in the comments. Um, anything else? The only other thing is, and, I, and we got in late on you because I, we were having connection problems uh, Sunday morning. I don't know if you mentioned this or not. Um, if you are, are using uh, Facebook to uh, participate in our Sunday morning worship, or uh, obviously as, as you are now with, with this, um, there is a way, and Chris can probably give you the uh, verbiage better than I, that uh, once you tune in to us, you can let others know that you are watching us. Uh, or him or them on, on Sunday morning. And uh, it is a way to share with all of those with whom you communicate through Facebook. Um, you know, not, not bragging that you are worshiping or not bragging that you are, are participating in a uh, Bible study, but just to let them know that if uh, during these down times and they want to tune in, they can do the same. And I do believe that we have um, obtained some individuals uh, with that, with that uh, activity. So, um, what do you, what do you, how do you do that? You share, you, uh, you, yeah. Just how do you tear, tell others that we're doing this? So, if you, uh, if you look at the bottom of my screen, on the, on the, well, on the bottom of your screen too, if you're watching it, um, right next to the comment section, there's a button that says share. You can do uh, a watch party. Those are really cool. It looks like you're live on your Facebook page. Um, you can share it to any group that you're in. You can copy the link and share it. Uh, you can copy that link and share it to, send it to someone's phone. Uh, you can write a post saying, hey, join me in this, in our worship service. Um, any of those ways would be great uh, to do that. Uh, we'd encourage you guys to do that. The more, uh, the more you share uh, the services, the more word gets out. Um, and honestly, the more people we can reach. Um, we are trying to be dispensers of hope <laughs> and encouragement during uh, this this time and truth and truth uh, absolutely and um, and uh, so we've, we've been trying to do more and more of that and the more people we can touch the more the, the better off uh, the cause of Christ will be and so um, if you could help us with that that would be wonderful so make also, sure you share that if you have any questions or comments that you would like us to address next week as we finish up this and go into the next lesson the next lesson um, if we finish up the, this lesson uh, we'll go ahead and start 
next week is, uh, and I think Chris will, or he has he has a copy uh, posted. We're going to be looking at manna and water, Ola, and how that's reflected in Christ, uh, bread of life, water of life uh, in the new. And so uh, that's our next lesson, and that will be available to you as well. I'm excited about that. That'll be really good. All right. Thank you guys for your comments. Uh, I don't see any questions. All right. So thank you guys for your comments. Thank you for participating, for being with us today. We'll see you Sunday.